0: Jimmy Carter is the last agrarian president. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Look, if you want to support the show financially, go to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And then, of course, you can purchase classes there. I've got over 20 available for purchase. And that keeps this podcast free of charge. And it's a win-win for you because you get great content. If you love the podcast, you're going to love McClanahan Academy. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll and get that free class and buy a class. You're going to love it. Also, rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review where you where you can, leave a text review where you can. If you're watching on YouTube, leave that comment. It helps the algorithm. So all those are great ways to support the show. And as always, share it around on social media as well. Let people know you love it there. That's how we grow the audience. All right, well, we know Jimmy Carter has been moved to hospice, and of course, that can mean that he'll, he's got weeks or months to live. Nobody really knows. The last reports I saw as I'm recording this, he hasn't died yet. Uh, of course, that's coming sooner rather than later. But that he's still eating, he's still in good spirits, so it could be a little while. We know cancer had, uh, Carter had cancer, excuse me, cancer had Carter. Carter had cancer, um, so we know that this is probably something to do with that. Um, he's 98 years old, so your body begins to fail when you're 98. And of course, Carter uh, served as president from 1977 to 1981, and I really believe, and that's what I said in the opening, that Carter was the last agrarian president. He is a He is the quintessential Southern gentleman. You can dislike Carter's politics, and there's a lot to dislike. Some of the things, though, that people are harsh on Carter for are actually the right moves. For example, uh, appointing Paul Volcker to the Federal Reserve, which Carter didn't really like a whole lot when Volcker kept jacking up interest rates. But it saved the inflationary crisis of the 1970s. It stopped it. And even though people were being forced to pay 20% for mortgages, that eventually came back down and... Uh, But the inflationary crisis was over. And uh, trust me, as I'm recording this in 2023, you're going to see more of this in the the coming future. Uh, We're going to see some pretty bad economic conditions because even Warren Buffett and other leftists have come out and started saying, well, uh, I think we need to start jacking up interest rates more. Inflation is really going to be a problem. And the Biden administration isn't really doing much about it. Uh, The spending has to be cut. And interest rates have to go up to stop the inflationary crisis. And inflation is a tax that everyone pays. It's indiscriminate. If you are someone making minimum wage, or if you're someone making a lot of money, you're going to pay an inflationary tax. And it hurts the poorest people the most because as food prices go up and your wages don't go up and uh, you're not making any extra money to compensate for this, well, it's a real detriment to you and your life and your quality of living. And so... Uh, I think that what we're going to see is a pretty nasty period of time. And Carter was facing the same thing in the late 1970s. You had terrible inflation under the Nixon and Ford administrations. Of course, also under the Johnson administration, a lot of that was caused by guns and butter. And then, of course, Nixon taking the United States off the gold standard or any kind of precious metal standard. Uh, So we saw that in the 70s and Carter came in. There are some things, of course, not to like about Carter. establishing the Department of Education for one and um, some of his foreign policy decisions weren't necessarily the best though Carter was uh, one of the only presidents in the last say 40 years 50 years who didn't get the United States involved in a war Donald Trump's the other so uh, you can say that's pretty good about Jimmy Carter Um, if you look at uh, Carter's foreign policy with the uh, Iranian hostage crisis. People say, well, Carter did nothing about it. He actually did. He, he sent in an expedition to get those men out, and it, it crashed. The helicopters crashed in the desert. So um, it wasn't that Carter was necessarily inept all the time, but, um, of course, he's often portrayed that that way because Reagan followed up, and Reagan seemed to be much better. But all the credit that Reagan gets for deregulation, for example, took place under the Carter administration. So there's a lot of things to say about Jimmy Carter, and uh, my friend and colleague Kevin Goodsman actually pointed out that Carter was probably the only president... And say, the last 50 years, it didn't deserve to be impeached for doing uh, too many things wrong. Um, I actually liked his Crisis of Confidence speech, which, of course, Pat Cadell wrote. And Pat Cadell was one of Donald Trump's advisors. So Carter had this this attachment to the working-class people of America, and that's because of how he grew up. And I said at the beginning he was the last agrarian president. Uh, Carter wrote a little book entitled An Hour Before Daylight. And it was about his time growing up on a farm in Archery, Georgia, but you know, right near Plains, Georgies. He lives in Plains now, but grew up in Archery, Georgia, near Plains, Georgia. And so he kind of calls both areas home. But no other president in the future is going to be able to write a book like this. Because I don't think we're ever going to have another farmer president. Carter grew up on a farm. He was a peanut farmer. Really a political outsider when you look at his chances in 1976, you had an incumbent president. Carter was the governor of, a, of Georgia, which didn't have the same kind of political clout it does today. Um, he was considered to be you know, one of these New South Democrats, leftists in a lot of ways on social issues, which of course he came to show in his later years when he uh, embraced Stacey Abrams and others in Georgia. A lot of people don't like him for that. and He's always been a leftist. Carter, though, campaigned uh, in a very interesting way. Um, he didn't he didn't try to show himself as a leftist very much. I mean, he did kind of campaign, but he kind of campaigned to the left, though, and then moved to the center as he got into office. And you can say that about Carter. Um, he was, of course, a World War II vet, uh, was an extremely brilliant individual. Nuclear submarines were his specialty. And he, in fact, favored nuclear energy for the United States. He thought it was the way forward. He uh, was interested in more of an environmental movement. He had solar panels installed in the White House, which I don't think are there anymore. I think they took those out a long time ago. But he had things like this. all for show, right? I don't think that he really even did anything at the White House. But um, regardless, he was very interested in this agrarian life. He thought that small farms, small towns, uh, the land, these things were important. I want to read some of An Hour Before Daylight because, again, no one else would ever write a book like this no president in particular would ever write a book like this. I don't mean that other people can't write a book like this who live on farms and grow up this way, but you're never going to see a president like this again. The political culture we have in, in America now on both sides, the establishment sides, will mandate that we don't have anything like this ever again. Uh, we're not going to have an outsider that comes from a Depression-era farm. Of course, that you know, these people are now in their 90s. Um, so that's, I mean, age is, is going to age these people out, right? But even look at Joe Biden, who's 80, or Trump, who's around that age. These people didn't grow up like this. Uh, Biden grew up, um, not. He, Biden didn't struggle. Uh, there, Biden wasn't, wasn't in a family that struggled. Uh, same thing with Donald Trump. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't have somebody elected president in the future who grew up in you know very middle class or lower middle class surroundings, but more and more Americans, of course, are living in urban and suburban environments. I think it's more likely that you have a president come from that kind of environment, struggling in that in that kind of environment, than you would in a rural environment. I just don't see it happening anymore. Um, these people just don't seem to be um, getting into politics for good reason. It's not a it's a it's a cesspool. It's not a good place. But and then to have that that kind of Jeffersonian feel to things. And I remember I emailed a, a friend of mine um, who knew Jimmy Carter knows Jimmy Carter. And I said, you know, Carter, something about Carter being, you know, an agrarian and preferring to live a very simple life. And he said, yeah, Carter would uh, would go out and walk around the field and then go inside and write a poem about it. And you look at Carter's retirement. He's cost the United States the least amount of money when it comes to the, the Secret Service commitment. Um, he still teaches a Sunday school class in Plains where he did until um, he became uh, you know, hospitalized and, of course, in hospice. Um, he still was someone who liked to work with Habitat for Humanity. I mean, that alone, that, that charity alone has done a lot of good for people who needed a house and uh, you know, low-income people, and there's sweat equity in it. If you don't know anything about that program, you don't just get a house. You have to go help build it yourself. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, interesting program, and Carter, of course, is behind all of that. I remember when he, when he left D.C., There's a, there's a video of this after Reagan took office and Carter flies back to Plains. And you could tell he was disappointed. I I don't think that uh, anyone who's ever lost, he served one term, anyone who's ever lost like that wasn't disappointed. You could see it on his face. He was not happy about being back in planes and not being president any longer and being defeated. I mean, it's a a big blow to your ego. But he shows back up in planes and you've got all the people waiting for him. And they take him in this little kind of garage and they've got all these Sears tools in there for him to use. Craftsman tools. In this garage, all this stuff that he could do woodworking and other things with. Who gets that? I mean, imagine you know Barack Obama getting a, a workshop when he retires and he goes back. Of course, Obama's never really retired, but imagine that, you know, or or Donald Trump, or you know, any of these people that would get something like that. You're really not going to see that anymore. Carter was was to many people just as blue collar as they were. His brother, Billy Carter, with his gas station, which is still there in Plains. It's now a little museum. But the gas station is still there on the main street of Plains, Georgia. Um, And his colorful character. You're just not going to see people like this anymore in the executive office. So I do want to read some of this book because it's a fascinating glimpse into the world that Jimmy Carter grew up in that's no longer there. But also in a way that shows you that these people will no longer exist like this. So he says, my most persistent impression as a farm boy was of the earth. There was a closeness, almost an immersion in the sand, loam, and red clay that seemed natural and constant. The soil caressed my bare feet. The dust was always boiling up from the dirt road that passed 50 feet from our front door. So that inside our clabbered house, the red clay, particles ranging in size from face powder to grits, were ever-present, particularly in the summertime when the wooden doors were kept open and the screens just stopped the trash and some of the less adventurous flies. Until 1938, when a paved highway was cut through the woods a mile north of our house, we were proud that our small crooked dirt road was the official United States Route 280. For those days, it was heavily traveled by automobiles, trucks, and buses, but with few exceptions, the local people passing in front of our house worked or rode on mule-drawn wagons. The railroad ran just a few feet on the other side of the dirt road, and we never failed to wave at the conductors, engineers, and passengers who seemed as remote as travelers from another planet. I mean, what a beautiful paragraph. uh, Talking about the dirt. He was immersed in the dirt. Immersed in the dirt. Um, And... Who else is going to write something like that today? It's when I said he's the last agrarian president. He's writing this, of course, at a time in the 1930s uh, when, um, or he's writing about a time in the 1920s and 30s when you have the fugitive agrarians writing, I'll take my stand. And these are the people he was talking about. Now Carter, in this book, is very critical of the federal government and what they made his father do. His father hated the federal government for making them come in and slaughter hogs and not plant as much of a certain crop or uh, what they had to do with their farm products. His father really hated the federal government and their heavy-handed ways of uh, managing the agricultural sector in America at this point. But Carter was always uh, interested in the in the pursuit of agriculture and what it meant for America. He understood that farmers, and blue-collar people, Really, were you know the backbone of the economy in the United States. It takes people with capital to make things go. You need rich people, but you also need people to work those jobs. And one of the things we're seeing after COVID is that people don't want to go to work anymore, and so you're seeing the the quality of work suffer in the United States. Um, you know, with uh, with the New Palestine trail derailment, trail derailment, train derailment, excuse me, if I could speak this morning. Uh, some of the people were talking about that they can't get any quality people to work at the railroads anymore. It's it's a hard hard job and of course people don't want to do this kind of stuff and so uh, Carter's talking about a bygone era when you know you had all these blue collar people of course you know, manufacturing people, agricultural people and these were his people, these are the people he grew up with even though he, his father was fairly prominent and uh, they, um, they had a nice farm but he always had an attachment to those people and he had an attachment to that land he says it didn't seem that we Watched outside all the time, but someone in the house was always aware if a non stranger was passing by, and we knew a lot of people, a lot about the people in their vehicles. We recognized the make of cars and pickup trucks as far as we could see them, and could identify most of the local vehicles by the sound of their engines and rattles. One difference between then and now, I guess, was that there was usually someone out in the yard, the store, the garden, or a nearby field who watched the passing scene. One difference between then and now. And he was writing this book a long time ago, but that's air conditioning for you. That's that's the front porch culture he's talking about there, which is now gone. People sat outside. People were outside at the garden. He says at the um, the store, the garden, the yard, or the field. They were always watching people, always knowing what was going on. Now everyone lives inside. They don't see anything. They don't know what happens in the outside world. And I think it's a getting worse. Uh, the pandemic, uh, of course, exacerbated the problem. All the lockdowns and everything else, the quote-unquote pandemic, exacerbated the problem. People staying inside, and not going anywhere. I mean, I, I really think that that's a damaged uh, the way that we see the outside world. Really old people, those not feeling well, and able-bodied folks, on rainy days or on Sundays, were most often sitting on their front porches. When we passed someone's house, we felt somewhat uncomfortable if we not we didn't see anyone there whom with whom we could exchange a wave or a hello. So everyone sat outside. Of course, no air conditioning. No air conditioning. People sat outside. They had to to stay cool. You didn't want to sit inside. Anybody's ever been to the south in the summertime uh, or most of the year. I mean, it's it's uh <laughs> it's it's pretty hot, right? So you're going to be outside to avoid the stifling humidity inside the house. Very few farm homes had a telephone but there was one in our house. It was number 23, and we answered two rings. On the same party line, the Bacons had one ring, and the Watsons picked up on three. In fact, there were usually two other listeners on to all our calls. We seem to have an omniscient operator in planes. If we place a call to Mr. Roy Brannon, Miss Gladys would say he left for America's this morning at about 9.30, but he plans to be back before dinner. He'll probably stop by the stable, and I'll try to catch him there. She also had the latest news on any sickness in the community, plus a lot more information that ind- indicated that there were maybe three listeners on most calls. Right? I mean, it's pretty funny, right? So we all think about private phone calls today, but when the telephone first started, you always had an operator, and everyone listened in. You, people all, you had a party line, so everybody could hear your telephone conversations that had the phone. There wasn't any phone privacy. Uh, we, we talk a lot about that today, private phone calls, but there was no such thing. In the 1920s and 1930s. And then this part. Again, you're not really going to see anybody write uh, this as a president anymore in a book. I mean, you know, you're going to have people like Carl Rove, who I talked about last week, not by name, but Carl Rove, who calls Confederates the enemies. You know, he's a Bush advisor. And you're going to have people that are interested maybe in the war or World War II. But um, not the way Jimmy Carter was. And there's a story about Jimmy Carter when uh, Gettysburg or Gaz and Jett- I can't remember if it was Gaz and Jettles or Gettysburg, which came out in the, in the theater. And there was somebody, somebody went to the theater and they were sitting, it was you know, one of the premieres and he heard this person behind him talking about saying this and this and that, kind of being disruptive in the theater, they thought. He turned around and it was Jimmy Carter because he knew the war so well. He, could, he was telling stories about uh, you know this movement or whether this was right and all these kind of things, Carter loved the war. He loved talking about the war, and he loved history. And Carter, being from Georgia, and you look at the, the history of the Confederate flag in Georgia or Confederate monuments, Carter tried to walk a tightrope with that. He understood that a lot of constituents who didn't care for the, for the symbol that much. However, in the 19, from the 1970s to the 1990s, the flag as a symbol wasn't uh, something that people were interested in taking down and Carter would never defend it, but he also wouldn't say anything bad about it. Not until recently when he's come out and, and made some statements uh, as I said in, in the last 20 years when people are really critical of what Carter said about things. Um, somebody did comment when I mentioned said some good things about Carter on social media that um, you know Carter is uh, he's a leftist and he's gone woke and all these kind of things. And he should have stayed retired. He he broke the precedent of criticizing the person in office. Look, American presidents criticize previous presidents all the time. I mean, where do you think... I'll just use an example for progressives. Where do you think Teddy Roosevelt comes from running for the Bull Moose Party? He was openly criticizing Taft. Openly criticizing Taft. And running for president. Uh, You know, when you look at Lincoln, for example. Everybody loves Lincoln. But you had two former presidents, Buchanan and Pierce, openly criticizing Abraham Lincoln and his uh, activities during the war. They thought that he was doing a a bad job. So this wasn't something that people didn't do. Uh, They didn't just go off into retirement and never say a word. It happened all the time. Uh, So uh, to say that there wasn't any criticism or even any public criticism is incorrect. Former presidents did these kind of things. It's just that uh, in the modern era, when we have the American monarchy, we don't expect the president to do that because we want the new monarch to have our undivided attention and be able to make decisions without the old monarch chiming in and saying something bad about it. But Carter was Republican with a lowercase r in this way and he lived in the same house that he grew up or lived in the 1960s for not grew up in but built the 1960s little little rancher there in Plains Georgia. He lives in the same house. Uh, now if you if you look at it's in a compound basically. You got the main road and you have a secret service house with a gated it's gated off you can't get down the road because you have to do that. But, I mean, Carter doesn't have a palatial mansion at Martha's Vineyard. Vineyard. He doesn't have Mar-a-Lago. He doesn't have something like that he, or a big ranch out in Texas. No, Carter has a little ranch house in Plains, Georgia. It's completely different. He walks around town. Uh, and people like Mr. Jimmy is what they call him. I mean, it's it's a different kind of lifestyle for Jimmy Carter. But let me read this about the about the war. He says, I've often wondered why we were so infatuated with the land. And I think that there's a strong tie to the Civil War, or as we called it, the war between the states. Now imagine a modern president writing that. Now Donald Trump goes out and says some nice things about Robert E. Lee, and he's raked over the coals for it. But here's Carter saying something very nice about the war. He's saying a you know, southern position on this. Although I was born more than half a century after the war was over, it was a living reality in my life. I grew up in one of the families whose people could not forget that we had been conquered, while most of our neighbors were black people whose grandparents had been liberated in the same conflict. I grew up in a family who could not forget that we had been conquered. Now, his family thought they were conquered. Uh, If you say that nowadays, well, then you didn't get punished hard enough. This is when I say Carter is a quintessential southern gentleman. He really is. Our two races, although inseparable in our daily lives, were kept apart by social custom, misrepresentation of holy scriptures, and the unchallenged law of the land as mandated by the United States Supreme Court. Although inseparable in our daily lives, were kept separated by social custom. But then this part is interesting, and this gets into the you know the issue of race relations in the South and uh, in the 20th century. He says it seemed natural for white folks to cherish our southern heritage and cling to our way of life, partially because the close ties among many of our local families went back another hundred years before the war, when our Scotch-Irish ancestors had come to Georgia from the British Isles or moved south and west, mostly from Virginia and the Carolinas. We were bound together by blood kinship, as well as by lingering resentment against those who had defeated us. A frequent subject of discussion around my grandparents' homes was the damage the damn Yankees had done into the South during Reconstruction years his grandparents, who, of course, had been around it. Uh, I mean, that's incredible when you think they're still that close of a tie with Jimmy Carter. He still remembers people who had been part of it. Many older Georgians still remembered vividly the anger and embarrassment of their parents, who had to live under the the domination of carpetbaggers and their southern allies, who were known as Scalawags. My grandfather Gordy was 13 years old when what he saw as the northern oppressors finally relinquished political and economic control of the state in 1876, 11 years after the conflict ended, my mother was only one, and was the only one in her family who ever spoke up to defend Abraham Lincoln. I don't remember ever hearing slavery mentioned, only, on, only the unwarranted violation of states' rights and the intrusion of the federal government in the private lives of citizens. Folks never considered that the real tragedy of Reconstruction was its failure to establish social justice for the former slaves. Now, uh, this is, of course, Carter's. You know, saying some kind of leftist talking points here, or uh, you know, what you even consider neoconservative talking points. Uh, Eric Foner and Carl Rove sound exactly the same on this. Um, so, uh, but there, if you look at the issue of slavery, I'm going to talk. I'm, I might do a show on slavery this week and teaching slavery. And there's an article out with David Blight and someone else, but. Um, It's reconstruction, it's emancipation and how it was done that really is a tragedy. I don't think Carter's saying anything that's incorrect here. How uh, slavery ended immediately without any type of infrastructure to make that situation work was really the tragedy of the entire thing. The intense bitterness was mostly confined to our older relatives who couldn't understand the desire of some of us younger ones to look more into the future, at least at the present, instead of just the past. So, you know, this is an interesting statement, right? And he goes on to talk about race relations in Georgia and uh, how there was a lot of, uh, he mentions it in the paragraph before, but how there was a lot of, uh, you know, easiness between the races in Georgia. And um, they never really got all of the angst that had been developing in the United States. And again, I'm going to talk about that more this week, too, with a piece on Jim Crow and where that actually comes from. And it's not in the South, there's a long article about this uh, that was actually published in the Washington Post that I'll get into this week, but Jimmy Carter's affinity for the land and this love of history and that attachment to the rural South. As I've said before, Jimmy Carter is the last agrarian president, but in many ways too, probably the last Southern, real Southern president that you're going to find, a person who was willing to talk about this part of Southern history and not be ashamed of it, a person who was uh, willing to talk about you know, this time period in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, South, which was uh, different than it is today. In fact, it won't be long before the people that were around during Brown v. Board of Education are going to be dying off in larger numbers that really remember much of what was going on. And even in the 1960s, you know, you look at people that grew up during that time, and a lot of these people are now in their 60s and 70s. It won't be long till there aren't people around who ever remember a segregated south or a segregated united states that will that will be gone and so all we'll have left are the or the memoirs and the books of people who wrote about this stuff and uh, jimmy carter is a beautiful example of what the kind of kind of presidents we used to have and you know carter was a jeffersonian you had people like jefferson and madison and monroe and i mean even people like jackson and uh, james k polk and uh, these people that were farmers first and foremost that's a George Washington was a farmer first and foremost. That's an entirely different occupation than merchant, banker, politician, lawyer. Now, of course, a lot of these people were also lawyers, but even uh, John Adams. You look at John Adams. He was a farmer. He loved being a farmer. He had his little farm farm there in Braintree. Now, his son was just a career diplomat, basically. And you know, John Quincy Adams is something entirely different than what we ever had when he was elected president in 1824. But um, and then you know, Martin Van Buren um, wasn't really a farmer. Uh, you know, so you you had you moved away. But you know, John Tyler was a farmer. Uh, you moved away from this uh, you know agrarian type of environment. When you get to about the 1860s, and then uh, moving forward, you had some you had some you know deviations from farmers before the 1860s. But uh, Lincoln was a high profile lawyer. He was uh, not a farmer. He grew up in a you know, kind of a shiftless society. His father really wasn't much of anything, and um, so Lincoln wasn't wasn't a farmer. He was a lawyer, and then you get the same kind of thing. You know, you get a general. Then after that, and Grant, and uh, who did have a farm, and he actually had slaves at one point. Lincoln, by the way, also sold slaves, but um, which is a, a bombshell a revelation coming out of a new book by Kevin Johnson. But um, you you have this, uh, you know, very interesting. You know, shift in America. Jimmy Carter really represented the last of the Jeffersonians in office. Years ago, I wrote a piece for the Abbeville Institute entitled The Last Republican with a lowercase r. And a lot of people don't understand that term. They think that when I say Republican, I'm talking about the Republican Party. But I wasn't. Jimmy Carter was a Republican from the founding generation. A man who was uh, interested in service. A man who was uh, Republican with a lowercase r in that he was a man of the people. Someone who was... um, you know, not interested in monarchy. He really tried to tone down the executive office. You know, very much like Jefferson, who walked to his inaugural. Carter did some things that were very Jeffersonian while he was in office. And so that made him unique and different. And again, I don't think is ever going to be repeated in American history. This this memoir, An Hour Before Daylight. Let me, If you're watching on YouTube, let me hold up the book. Uh, there it is, An Hour Before Daylight. You should get this book. My copy is actually autographed by Jimmy Carter. So it's one of... Uh, the books that I I, uh, I like in my collection, you know, that particular book, and it's just such an interesting story about life in in, uh, in Archery, Georgia, Plains, Georgia, growing up on a farm during the Depression, and um, a life that's gone. And in many ways, when Carter uh, passes away, uh, again sooner rather than later, as I'm recording this, he's still living. Uh, we're going to lose that last attachment to Jeffersonianism out of the executive office. You're never going to see it again. And that is the real tragedy of the passing of Jimmy Carter. Uh, That phase in America will be gone forever. I just don't see anyone being able to to replicate that because they don't have the same life experiences as Jimmy Carter. No one's going to write about the dirt like Jimmy Carter did. No one's going to go in and write about the war and their attachment to it because of what their grandparents had said about it. And, of course, their great-grandparents, who had been part of it, had said about it as well. So... Um, it's, um, it's a sad day when he does uh, pass away because that part of the American story is fine. That chapter is finally closed. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan show. See you then.